Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and I'm very pleased today to welcome back to the table Trent Rogers. Trent's sermon that he shared with our church this past weekend focused on the eighth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and that will also be the focus of our discussion for the coming minutes. Well, Trent, I made the comment last week as Jeremy Kimball and I were finishing our discussion that in chapter 8, after four chapters of introduction and three chapters of his first public discourse there, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus really starts to get his hands dirty. And I don't think that that's a a, a wrong way to look at it. We're getting into Mm -hmm. things that he's actually doing now. Yeah, that's true. Uh, We have some, as you've noted, some passing comments that he's healing many. But now we have this, uh, the fuller description of how he's interacting with people. And we get a little more of a a human feel of his interactions here. Right. And and to that point, uh, let's start with Jesus's actions following the Sermon on the Mount. We read in chapter 4, verse 23, before we even get to the Beatitudes, actually, and Matthew quotes this. He says, and, we, and he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, what we read about Jesus doing there beginning in chapter 8 those probably aren't his first miracles. You just mm-hmm. referenced that. But Matthew, as the the editor, so to speak, of the story led by the Holy Spirit, he shares these miracles and his interactions with us purposefully. Can you talk to some of the points that Matthew, you think, is trying to make as he shares these particular stories at this time? Yeah, you're, you make some good points here. Um, just to remember that what we have recorded in Scripture is not everything Jesus ever did. Right. So like John 20 tells exactly. us, you know, Jesus did a whole lot of things. Um, I haven't recorded them all, but I've recorded these for this purpose. So John tells us his exact purpose uh, in, in writing his account. So the same is true in all of the Gospels, that there there's more that Jesus did than they could have possibly written in this book. But these are selected stories um, that are true stories, I should add, um, with a, an interpretation inspired by the Spirit. So Matthew is telling us, for example, that this is in fulfillment of this prophecy. Hmm. So you're right to say Matthew is making a point with the way that he, uh, the stories that he relates and the way that he relates them. So in chapter 8, I think the major theme is authentication of who he is and his message. Okay. So you have this display of his utter authority and power. So the second thing I think would be authority. You come off the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has taught a lot, and they marvel that he taught with authority. But then we say, do, do these words have power? In the very first story, he stretched out his hands and says <laughs> a simple phrase, I will be clean, two words in Greek, and the leprosy immediately was cleansed. So you have that recurring thing of Jesus saying one thing to the demons at the end of the chapter, go. And they go. Um, so you have that power. And I do also think Matthew is, has selected these particular stories to emphasize the proper response to the king. Right. So we have positive responses like the leper and the centurion. And then we have this terrifying picture of a hardened human heart at the end where the townspeople said, 
get away from us. Mm. So I think okay. that's what Matthew's doing. Yeah, okay, great. And there are uh, there's an uh, abundance of parallel between passages like chapter 8 and chapter 9 on into Acts. Mm. We see a lot of the same things after Pentecost. Can you talk to, we, we call them sign gifts in our circles. This sign gifts, and you talk about to, uh, to verify or to authenticate the message that Jesus is preaching, also to authenticate who he is. That's what seems to be what you're saying. Y- yes. So <laughs> I would say sign gifts have a, a similar function of Jesus's miracles in the sense that they authenticate the message. Right. But I would draw a distinction between sign gifts that God by his spirit enables people to do in Jesus doing this out of who he is. Certainly. So he is God. So he has the ability in himself to do these uh, miraculous things, whereas these humans, uh, particularly the the apostles, have been um, granted this ability uh, on on account of their God's desire to authenticate His message. So those are those are things that we see in three main periods uh, throughout the Bible. So you think Moses and Joshua, giving of the law, authentication of that message is also accompanied by some of these miraculous things. Elijah and Elisha with the prophets authenticating that message. Jesus and the apostles authenticating that message as well. But I would say, categorically, Jesus' ability to perform miracles is different in that he is God himself. Certainly, certainly. And it's interesting, and uh, one uh, one of our preaching team members, I think, pointed this out, and I, I remember, I know we talked about this in my uh, Sunday school class, my adult Bible fellowship, but in, we have in chapter 4, verse 23, a passage uh, just quoted, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. We also have in chapter 9, uh, verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing almost word for word. Yep. We have this package, and it, Matthew seems to be really packaging this whole, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the verifying miracles within a, a storyline here. Yes, so I, I think you're right. So, um, you know, we mentioned that Matthew has five major teaching sections, and he's deliberately arranged the gospel of Matthew around those five major teaching sections. Then you have those intervening st- narratives or stories. And the question is, okay, so how does that narrative section relate to the teaching section? Right. And does it go with the teaching section before or the teaching section following? Well, the answer is both in some sense. But I do think you, you're on to something there with that connection between the end of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 9, really looking at that as a unit. So Jesus' authoritative teaching and the demonstration of Jesus's authoritative power, which then leads us into chapter 10, can be the foundation for chapter 10 of the commissioning of the disciples to go and tell. So because Jesus is this authoritative teacher, because Jesus has been demonstrated to be God in the flesh, now go tell. Interesting. It's interesting to look through Bible's literature. Yes. To see yes. how Matthew and the other brilliantly composed. It really yep. is. Well, Trent, you had a lot to deal with here in chapter eight, and one of the matters that you really didn't have time to discuss extensively on Sunday is found in verse twenty, as Jesus is approached by a scribe who tells him, and I'm quoting here from Scripture, "Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go." 
end quote. And then Jesus replies to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now I know that this is a key link to a very important Old Testament text there in Daniel. Can you share the significance of what Jesus is saying here? He, this is the first time he uses this phrase. It's going to be used a lot throughout the rest of Matthew. Talk to us what, what's going on here. So I will be as brief as I can with this <laughs> this big concept. We try to keep it under 30 minutes yeah, here right. for the whole podcast. Um, so they don't want another sermon. But the Son of Man title is probably Jesus' favorite title for himself. And it has uh, engendered any number of debates. I mean, there are endless books written on Settle this. Settle the debate right now. Try. Okay, I'll do, I'll do it. Uh, <laughs> it's it's flexible. Okay. So so the term Cop out. I, I no I think no, I think that's good. the brilliance of yeah. it is that Jesus chooses this term that's flexible. So it can highlight in this Old Testament uh, background it can highlight just humanity or it can highlight deity. Hmm. So Ezekiel famously uses it this phrase son of man just human. Just right. human. Like right. and so when Jesus says son of man in some sense it's just like He's just a human being. But then there's other passages like Daniel 7 is probably the most well-known where it's a, this, uh, this person coming out of heaven uh, from the ancient of days. And, it, and then you, you start to get the feeling as you read this text that boy, this, this person's actually God. Um, and then you can see Jesus drawing on that imagery in the end of John 1, uh, Matthew 16. I think it's mentioned in Matthew 25 as well, where Jesus is talking about the Son of Man is going to come with the glory of the Father. Uh, the Son of Man is this person that, that's kind of this, uh, this bridge, in a sense, between uh, the, the majesty of heaven and, and the earth. So angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man coming in the glory of with his angels. So you have those two themes there of highlighting humanity, highlighting deity, but there's also texts, perhaps even Psalm 8, which is a messianic text that starts to highlight this overtones of the Son of Man having a, a suffering role for his people. So you have this term that has a great deal of flexibility, and I think Jesus uses it really really masterfully as he interacts with people so that they eventually come to understand who he is. So, I think yeah, a great, great explanation. And I, I just want to mention as I'm hearing you talk, I can't help but think if this were a movie and we're going through these miracles and these are exciting miracles and it's easy to get lost for this particular phrase to get lost because we're just reading it yes. for content, but to look at it, and this is why it, so important to read scripture and to study it word by word, verse by verse. Everything has a, a purpose here. Yep. When you hear that son of man, I can almost hear the movie director saying, okay, we need some drums beating or something yeah. to indicate this is a big deal right here. Well, and, there, and you know, you bring that up. There's a contrast in some ways between how the scribe addresses Jesus. True. So the, the teacher is not the, the highest title that you can give somebody. Right. So Jesus has just been healing people. He's just been doing some really amazing things. He says, oh, teacher. Well, th that's not, um, that's true of Jesus, but that falls short of the full authority of who he is. And Jesus responds with, I'm the son of man. And, and, <laughs> Let's elevate this yeah, a little so, bit. Yeah. But is it human being, <laughs> teacher, or is it uh, this uh, right. divine figure? And the answer from is, what you said, it's probably yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, let's move on to another scene, kind of an intriguing scene. It's portrayed in verses 21 and 22. And this passage, I think, can create a tension for many Christians. I've thought about this more than a little bit myself. Jesus calls us to faithfulness, whatever we're doing. You know, Colossians yep. three seventeen, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. It's a thing that keeps coming to my mind. Most of us have responsibilities that we bear daily. They're somewhat temporal in nature. You and I were talking about this before we went to the microphones. I've heard certain preachers, teachers say that Jesus here is telling the disciple that he needs to be focusing only on the eternal matters at hand and leaving the temporal ones for others. But we also need to be faithful in those small matters. Can, can you share your thoughts on this? What, what do you think Jesus is saying? What's he not saying here? Yeah, I, I would want to say it, it's a spiritual thing to change a diaper. Um, you know, that's you my, both been there. No, yes, I'm still in that stage. <laughs> I am too. In a different phase. <laughs> oh yeah, you got grandkids uh, yeah. now. Um, so uh, I think that divide uh, can often be unhelpful. Um, so I think what Jesus is doing is really getting to the heart. So he encounters a rich young ruler, I think Matthew 19, and what's he tell him? Go sell everything. Now, is that a call that he makes of all of his disciples? Uh, no, but he's getting to the heart. You, I mean, you need to be willing to, if, if that's the call of God in your life, to sell everything and, and follow him, and you ought to do it. Mm-hmm. It's that radical call of discipleship. But he gets to the heart of that rich young ruler's right. idol. And I okay. think there's, there's something going on here with this particular person. So the scribe, he says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Does that mean that every Christian needs to be nomadic? No. Uh, but that scribe certainly had this idea that I'm going to come to Jesus and I'm going to get authority and position and I'm going to be established. He's like, I don't even have a home, you know. Hmm. Um, so when he comes to this next guy, it seems like I, if I had to uh, lay my cards on the table, I think he's trying to get his inheritance. Mm-hmm. And then once he's financially hmm. established... Yeah, then I'll then I'll follow you, and I always have my home to come back to. So it's an incomplete discipleship because it's kind of hedging your bets, right? You mm-hmm. know, I, I'm already yes. secure. So Jesus has a call for absolute devotion, and that's what Matthew's really trying to highlight in both of those things. We shouldn't conclude from this that we should be nomadic and that right. we should abandon our families, but we should conclude from that that there is a call for absolute devotion to Jesus. And if he calls you to those things, you respond and you follow. Now, should we care for our parents? Well, you know, Paul, 1 Timothy 5 says, if we don't care for our own household, we're worse than a non-believer. Right. So the answer is yes. There's not a, a divide between um, what is spiritual and of God and what is things that we're called to for this world. So a regular examining of ourselves to know what is keeping us from God is what you're getting at yep. and making sure that we are not allowing our natural tendencies, our, our loves yep. that are outside of Christ mm-hmm. to interfere. Yep. Good. Thanks. I appreciate that. Well, Trent, let's go to a, a popular culture matter. Uh, and it's really an eternal matter uh, tucked in there. Uh, today we're inundated by the popular media with depictions of the spirit world, both angels and demons. And it's been a long time. Popular TV shows touched by an angel or a highway to heaven or two that you know from my younger days that I remember. But we've got a lot more of it today. Beginning with verse 28 here, we have Matthew's first account involving demons. 
now aside from obviously dealing with Satan in the yep, in the yep. wilderness. But from this point forward, we're going to see Matthew and certainly the other three gospel authors share of Jesus's interactions with demonic forces. Yep. And I think it's appropriate here not just to get into popular culture, but to really touch on this. Does this kind of thing happen today? And if so, this demonic uh, uh, taking over of a person, and if so, what does a Christian need to be alert to do, or rather to be alert to the forces of Satan? Yeah, yeah, so this is the first extended interaction that we have in the Gospel of Matthew with demonic forces. Um, So a a few just general comments on this. This is a theme that we'll return to. I should tell you first that, you know, I didn't have an extensive PowerPoint this Sunday. Um, I noticed you were wanting, you were lacking. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. So my son, you know, I was explaining to him, my son's nine, I was explaining to him the, the sermon, and he was like, ah, do you think it'll be distracting that you don't have a PowerPoint, Dad? It's like, uh. I said, well, son, what do you think would be more distracted if, if I have a PowerPoint and I've got a picture of demon-possessed pigs? So I said, <laughs> I didn't Google that, but I was tempted to see what pictures come up with that. I mean, I'm sure there's there's some Bible curriculum somewhere that oh, has you're drawn. Killing me here. You're killing me. <laughs> so, um, so how do we how do we approach texts like this? Well, the first thing is we must not deny the supernatural. There's a tendency in our um, American mindset. It's not just an American mindset. It's it's a modern world mindset to be a, a complete materialist and basically right. deny that there is nothing beyond what is physical. Um, so we must not deny the supernatural. Secondly, I think we should not obsess over demons. So don't deny their existence, but don't obsess over them because we're not really commanded to interact with these demonic spiritual uh, forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're commanded to do is to be obedient to God's word. We're, we're supposed to follow him. We're supposed to put on the full armor of God, um, but we're not commanded really to, to seek interaction with demonic forces. I think one more thing to recognize is that the demonic uh, influence and manifestation is not a uniform thing. Like we think about a crazed person in the tomb that's what we think about a, a demonic manifestation. But even in the New Testament, um, demons are active in ways just beyond like what we'd say making somebody crazy. So you think about 1 Corinthians 10, mm-hmm. um, where there's this description of eating food sacrificed to idols. There doesn't seem to be anything crazed about that interaction, but he says that is eating at the table of demons. Now, I think Paul, what he's saying there is that they're, they're, the idol and this false god has no real existence. But what is causing people to be deceived? He's saying there's demonic forces that are deliberately drawing people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and trying to deceive them. So that doesn't have this like crazed manifestation like it does in mm-hmm. Matthew chapter right. 8. Insidious. But it's, yes, but it's equally, like you mentioned, equally insidious. So in a different culture, um, demonic influence might look at different ways, uh, trying to be the most deceptive that it possibly can. 
if you're listening and wondering why we're not going to go too any deeper or further into this conversation, it's because I'm holding back. We're going to have a lot more opportunity, and we're going to be talking about it with Trent and others here throughout the coming uh, months as we continue in Matthew. But I appreciate that. Great, it's a good summary statement that yep. uh, demon demonic forces are real, they're active. Let's leave it there, and let's we'll hit it later <laughs> okay. on. I appreciate that. So, Trent, you talked Sunday about the great grace that God shows to His creation, including us, even though we don't deserve it. And you added that if I am in fact saved by the grace of God, there's nothing I can to do to deserve His favor, and God can justifiably ask anything of me. Mm-hmm. And in one of your closing comments, you said we need to respond to Jesus' authority over us with humility. What should that look like for the believer, the believer Sunday morning sitting in that pew and they've been thinking about this week? What does that mean for that person? How can we, what are some things we can do to be following that guidance from you? Well, I think foundationally, it's how do we respond to what God has said in his word? And if he said, uh, believe this, hope in this, do this, then we believe, hope, and do those things. So it's it's a recognition that there is no part of my life that is not his. Hmm. So um, I, I like to begin my, my classes with this. Uh, we, we recite this thing together. It's from First Peter quoting an Old Testament text. All flesh is like grass. The grass withers and the flower fails. And then we all say together, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And that is a reminder for us that God in his word is authoritative over us. And whatever he says, we do. Um, so it takes humility to say, not my way, but your way. Um, if, if there's an inconsistency between what I'm thinking and what God has said, I'm wrong. Um, and that takes great humility but it's rightly perceiving who God is and who I am. And and just what you've done, one of the ways to do that is to memorize Scripture, mm-hmm. to meditate on it, to yep. recite it individually, corporately. I, I have passages in my mind from this past week and songs, you know, mm-hmm. listening to the right music, whatever it might be, filling our minds and, and pointing ourselves purposely towards the goal. Yeah, and, and responding to God's word with God's people is huge. Um, you know, re- responding corporately. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sharpening that I have even as I talk with you. I was like, oh, man, I should have included that. That was a good, that was a good comment, Bart. Um, so there's a sharpening that we have uh, doing this corporately. And I would even say in a smaller setting mm-hmm. as well. You know, my, my small group's going through Old Testament narrative texts, and we come and we start talking about this text. It's like it's it's a enlivening for me and insightful right. for me. And it's not just that. It's like when we say, okay, this is what God's calling us to, these are people that are in my life and are going to follow up and help me live it out. So. Trent, I can't tell you the number of times I've sat at this table and had that exact same thing. I feel a rough edge coming off because my, my thoughts have been sharpened by what I'm hearing from the other side of the table. And I think we would be remiss if we did not extend this at this time in our in our culture's development to those people who have, as a just a matter of course, said, you know what, it's pretty easy to stay at home on Sunday morning mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. I, I can watch the sermon. In fact, I can watch four or five on a Sunday morning, 
That's my mm-hmm. new my new uh, habit that I've developed, my new lifestyle. And I don't have to get together. In fact, God's still God, and I'm still his child if I'm not in a corporate church service with other people sitting next to me. There are health issues. We get that, that some people just can't. But for those, pers- those persons who have said, it's just more convenient, and I just enjoy the church of my sofa. Talk to that person. Yeah, I think you you in the the scenario in which you you describe, it's not necessarily the the person who has a severe health risk or is totally incapable, right? Um, or is distanced from some for some other reason beyond their control, but the person that says it is more convenient, I want to say, yeah, it is. I agree <laughs> I, with you. I, I get it. I, I get it. Um, and I, I've heard some people say it. You know, it can also be less distracting. I can just, uh, I can just listen, and you know, my kids have their stuff to do, and they're not distracting me. And um, I, I want to say I, I get it. It is more convenient, um, but it is not better. It is. It is more convenient, but it is at the detriment of your soul. And if you have children, the detriment of their soul, because. God in his goodness has oriented us and designed us uh, to thrive together. So one of the things that we've said at Grace before is God creates humans uh, for community. He creates us with relationality. Um, He creates us with emotional needs even. And he's recreated us. That is, he's made us Christians Mm -hmm. for the church so that we want to ingrain in our people a church-centered vision of the Christian life for the good of their souls. And and we could look at a number of New Testament texts, especially that emphasize uh, the importance of gathering together. So there there are texts like in Hebrews that don't neglect the, the gathering of yourself together, but there's also just the implicit assumption that runs throughout the New Testament that a Christian will be a part of a body. So if you're going to submit to your leaders, which leaders are you submitting to? And it's that, it, guy on, and the guy, the guy on, on the screen. Sunday morning, right. One of the five right, that you're right. watching. <laughs> um, so how are you going to live that out? How are you going to encourage one another? How are you going to give generously to the cause of Christ? How are you, how are you going to um, do all of those commands that's body life? You know, you think about even 1 Corinthians 12 and being gifted with spiritual gifts for the common good, how are you going to exercise your spiritual gifts in that body that is the local church if you're not a part of that? So um, I do think we're we're at a, I want to say this with pastoral sensitivity, that we need to call one another to assembling. Because even though it seems ordinary to gather, it's truly supernatural. It really is. And to go back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 10, there is something supernatural about the assembly of God's people together that is a fellowship with one another and a fellowship with God. So there's a horizontal and a vertical element of that. And I don't want our people to miss the spiritual benefit, and I don't want to be robbed of the spiritual benefit that would come to me with them being here. And it's it's not without purpose that the Scripture says where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. That doesn't mean that he's not with the one 
who is alone. Yep. I mean, we know we're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but he makes a point to say, God makes a point to say, we are together or more. And it orients us towards heaven, right? Yes. I mean, it sometimes does. there's there's these pictures uh, people have of heaven as going to be me and Jesus sitting around. <laughs> um, and I want to say that there's not there's going to be a lot of singing in heaven, mm-hmm. but there's not going to be any solos, right? Because it's uh, the great community of God's people from all ages gathering together, expressing their faith in God and in His glory, uh, and magnifying that together as one people. Trent, there was a lot to cover in chapter 8. I'm sure next week in chapter 9 we'll have the same problem, but it's a great problem to have. Thanks for your time. Thanks for sharing with us today. Thanks for having me, Bart. I've been talking today with Trent Rogers as we discuss his recent sermon from Matthew chapter 8, and you can access Trent's sermon and many other messages from our extensive audio catalog as well as recent podcast episodes by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And please join us next time as we continue in our study of the book of Matthew. And until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan. I'm thanking you again for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.